Hello, I'm your host Tom Payne, and welcome to this 14th edition of Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric group blog SilentRunning.tv. Each week we take a look at the news from a blogging perspective, as well as have a couple of interviews either with bloggers or with people involved in stories making an impact in the blogosphere. Blogs and websites mentioned on the show are hyperlinked at Silent Running, so if you hear an interesting sounding blog on the show, you can go to Silent Running, click on the link and read it for yourself. Coming up on SNN this week, we speak to Steve Rosenbaum, the documentary filmmaker who made Seven Days in September about the aftermath of September 11th. In New York, for at least two to three weeks, we really thought the world was in. We thought there was going to be a nuclear attack or another building was going to fall down or anthrax was going to cover the city. I mean, I think I felt that someone might end up picking it up out of a time capsule, you know, out of the destroyed remnants of New York. And we'll hear the second part of an interview with Australian historian Keith Winshuttle, who says classrooms have become politicised, with schoolchildren being taught outrageous lies. I got an email last night from a, a school teacher, who was in fact a science teacher, who had been sitting in on, on a history teacher's class and was handing out the material which um, the history teacher had left for him. And the first question was, when did Australia abandon slavery? The idea that Australia ever had slavery is outrageous. Joining us on the line from London, as always, will be Andrew Ian Dodge, and we'll have the regular full of crap report from Lawrence Simon. Right now, though, complete with groovy jihadi video backing music. Log news. The other day I needed to travel to another part of Melbourne, where I live. I walked down to the Flinders Street railway station, used my Met card to get past the turnstile, walked down the stairs to the correct platform, and had to run a bit to catch the train before it left. Now, if I'd been in London, that sort of behaviour might have been enough for the cops to tackle me and pump several bullets into my skull. Thanks to a leak, it appears that almost everything we'd been told about the suspicious behaviour of Jean-Charles de Menezes, the Brazilian man shot dead by the Metropolitan Police at the Stockwell tube station, was an enormous pack of lies. I bow to no one in my determination to fight this war on Islamofascism, and I dismiss the hysterical amateur dramatics of the left over such manufactured scandals as Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. This, however, is different. An innocent man was killed by the forces of the state for apparently no reason whatsoever. If they're going to go around blowing commuters away, apparently because the guy who was supposed to know the difference between a civilian and a wanted terrorist was out the back having a slash, then perhaps it's time for a bit of a rethink. Everyone, and I mean everyone in the right-leaning blogosphere, is coming down hard on this, but Sami's data and Mark Stein are particularly and justifiably harsh. You knew it was coming, Sindishian. Oh dear, what can you say? The poor woman has lost her son in Iraq and has clearly decided to stage a very public nervous breakdown by camping outside the president's ranch in Texas and demanding to meet him again. Rather more culpable in my book are the cynical political operatives who've attached themselves to her like the leeches they are, purely so they can use her to create some momentum for their causes. People like Joe Trippy of JoeTrippy.com, who set up a blog conference call for Cindy, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mother Sheehan, as they insist on her being called, to spout her rather crazed ideas on. Have a listen. I am 
so overwhelmed and amazed at all the support this is getting and all of the, um, I really think it's a miracle. I think it was very um, serendipitous that I had this idea and it's just mushroomed. And you know what I attribute it to? I attribute it to the Internet and the blogosphere. They got everything out. You know, um, what Saturday night when I put it out, um, when we put it out that the ticket service was trying to intimidate us into leaving, it went all over the blogosphere and the Internet. And I just wanted everybody to know that if something happened to us, it would probably have been the Secret Service. And and so, um, and they knew that. You know, they, they watched the blogs and the, and the stuff, too. So this is something that can't be ignored, and they can't ignore us, and they can't shut us down. And... Um, like I said, it's just truly amazing, and thank God, thank God for the Internet, or we wouldn't know anything, and we we would already be a fascist state. And, you know, our, our government is run by one party, every level, and the mainstream media is a propaganda tool for the government, and if we didn't have the Internet, none of us would really know what was truly going on, and I have, I have said, since my son died, and the elections, um, you know, the elections, quote, unquote, that happened in November that it's we the people that have to cause the change. And I never got involved before Casey was killed because I didn't think one person can make a difference. Well, one person can't make a difference, but one person with millions of people behind her can make a difference. Sydney blogger Lee Cartwright writes in his blog, The House of Wheels, that he's noticed Cindy's habit of making predictions, which turn out to, well, not quite be accurate. Um, for example, Cindy Sheehan says she'll be arrested on Thursday. Thursday passes. She's not arrested. Cindy Sheehan says she'll be killed if she camps out after August 6th. She does. Over a week passes. She isn't killed. Any guesses as to what she'll claim will happen to her next? If it's going to keep getting bigger, I'll vote for the President will personally shoot flaming Jewish arrows at me until I get old. For more on the Cindy Sheehan Media Circus, stay tuned for Lawrence Simon's Full of Crap report a bit later on here on Cheyenne Network News. On the topic of deliberate use of emotional imagery to provoke sympathy for a political cause, the Jewish settlers in the Gaza Strip have been evacuated by the Israeli army. Look, I don't like seeing something like this any better than any of you do. Having yet another part of the Middle East ethnically cleansed of Jews this time by the Israeli government, sticks in the throat. And yes, our dear cousins, the Palestinians, are going to interpret it as a retreat under fire and will assume that murdering Jews obviously gets results and will take the chance to step up their campaign of terror. More Israelis will now be brought within rocket and mortar range and don't think for one instant that Islamic Jihad, Hamas or Fatah will stop the murder binge now they think they're on a roll. But Ariel Sharon has his eye on the big picture, which involves Israel staying alive. Having fewer than 10,000 Jews living inside a million and a half Arabs just wasn't feasible. Also, the last thing Israel needs if there's another war, and you just know there's going to be, is Arab irregulars opening up an internal front behind the lines. There are few choices open to any Israeli leader. None of them are particularly attractive. One blogger has actually been down in Gush Katif reporting on the evacuations personally. That's Renatina, whose blog Balagan I've been reading since she left her native Brazil to make Aliyah a few years ago. Go and read her. She captures the mood well. In the United States, Meryl Urish of urish.com has also been reacting to events. She writes, 
I found myself unable to read the stories or watch the news reports or even think very much about it because no matter whether or not you agree with the removal of the settlements, if you have a heart, you cannot but be upset to see people uprooted forcibly from their homes. Amen to that. And finally in blog news, praise the Lord and bang tambourines, brothers and sisters, a lost sheep has found his way back to the flock and now treads the paths of righteousness once more. Blogger Scott Randolph has had an epiphany. Actually, I think you can get a cream that clears that up quite nicely. He writes this, I actually felt myself become a Republican today. It was around 10am when I read the latest update of the Cindy Sheehan saga in CNN.com. I then shot over to read some blogs about it and peruse the comments in some of them, which was nothing but a long series of petty, albeit entertaining, partisan bickering. Then it happened. The good little Democrat in me tied the little noose around his neck and jumped off the stool. He just couldn't take it anymore. Take what? The whining! The constant whining by the extreme left about the reasons for war, the incompetence of the administration, how we've all been lied to, how we should pull out of Iraq immediately because <coughs> our soldiers were in danger. Guess what, folks? They signed up to join the army, not the Boy Scouts. Any time your orientation to a new job involves an automatic weapon, you should be smart enough to figure out there's danger involved. Welcome back, Brother Scott. Your sealed orders from Karl Rove are being drawn up even as we speak, and the weekly Zionist checks should start arriving soon. I wish mine would. And now let's join Andrew Ian Dodge, who will bring us up to date with developments from the crucial British front in the war. Good afternoon from London. This is Andrew Ian Dodge of Dodge Blogium and various other blog fame. I come to you as Britain in London, and the police are in a bit of a tizzy about this accidental shooting of a Brazilian. It seems that initially what Serene Blair had to say to the press was not, shall we say, entirely accurate. There were points that he had a bulky bag, which he didn't have, that he didn't stop when he was told to stop, and various other problems. Needless to say, despite all of us admitting that it's a tragedy, the left, much like they have with Miss All Israelis Out of Palestine, Sheehan, the left have jumped onto this cause celebre and gone full gusto. They are making a point of going after the shoot-to-kill policy, policing of terrorists, how the police are looking at Muslims and everything else. So it's a rather difficult situation. However, it is distracting us from much more important issues like the fact that the Italians have finally agreed to extradite the Islamist bastard that they've got. Unfortunately, being Italy, they said he, he, he's going to be a rush job and we'll get to see him in about 35 days. Normally, I gather it takes over a year. The police are quietly continuing to uh, round up people. In fact, they arrested four recently um, at, at an airport, I believe. They are following up on leads. Um, London is slightly less nervous than it was before, but the standard is, is keeping track of all the, the arrests to make let people know that the police are still on this and haven't sort of given up. Needless to say, there's still a bit of a contretemps over, over whether what Blair is saying is right, and Muslim organizations are coming out and condemning him, as is Liberty and a few other organizations. But overall, there seems to be a fairly good mood that the police and security services are on hand and they're, they're keeping track of what's going on and trying to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Of course, the big date that everybody's worrying about is September 11th. Coming back to the uh, Muslim issue, we have 
the Guardian continuously coming a cropper. Now, it turns out, followed on by Harry's place and, of course, um, Scott Burgess, is the fact that we seem to have a gentleman who purchased Osama bin Laden's satellite phone, writing for the Guardian. Yes? Writing for the Guardian. He's a Saudi dissident who is very anti-the Saudi family, but he's also very pro-Al-Qaeda. Most people have completely ignored this, and fortunately, places like Harry's place and Scott Burgess are following up on this and keeping the pressure down. Another interesting piece on Harry's place seems like Searchlight, who uh, used to be obsessed with the BNP finding them under every bed, have now decided that the BNP and the Islamists seem to have quite a bit in common. And there was a very good piece in Searchlight saying that Islamists like Amnujahurun are as big a threat to minorities in this country as, as is the BNP. When you put together that with some of the interesting developments when it comes to so-called moderate organizations, I was reading The Sun recently, and they called uh, the MAB a moderate organization. These moderate organizations, the MCB and the MAB, on the front look fairly moderate, and they're trying to norm themselves, and the BBC always goes to them as moderate. But if you scratch the surface, there's some rather nasty people involved, some of whom think it's perfectly reasonable to call for the reintroduction of the caliphate. These organizations call for the overthrow of the British government, the Queen, Sharia put in, but they're moderate, of course. That's enough from me. In London, please visit andreandodge.com disgracefulmusic.com and libertycadre.net. Hopefully in a couple weeks, maybe by the end of this month, I will have the track Cry Freedom, which we're going to record on Saturday, ready for SNN to play exclusively first place in the world. I hope you'll like it because we're putting a lot into it and it means a lot to it. So it's goodbye from London and I hope wherever you are you're safe. Stay safe indeed especially with September not far away and all that increased Al-Qaeda chatter. Why would September be significant? Here's a reminder. Conditions to one, he's sending all of my units to the Ferrazano Bridge. I don't know what's going on. What's going on, please? Thinking, we're leaving the battery tunnel. Respond to West Street and the World Trade Center. West Street side of the World Trade Center, number one. First of all, hit the alert tone. As far as all responding units to this location, it is a hard head operation. I still have the three flying through the air and I want to avoid anyone getting hurt. It's a hard head operation. 31 Young, EMM setting up a tree on Gary at Church Street and Fulton Street along with Six Young. Six Fisher and Six Young. 14, show me responding to Hospital 14. I have one patient at this time with third degree burns to 90% of his body. Memory jogged enough now? If you needed any reminding of that terrible day, there are plenty of books and DVDs, but there's one in particular that I admire, and that's Seven Days in September, a documentary by Stephen Rosenbaum. I recently gave away a DVD of the documentary, a surprise for someone who had the balls to stand on the steps of Sprawl Hall at the University of Berkeley in California, wearing an I Heart Gitmo t-shirt. I'm a shallow man, I admit it. Steve Rosenbaum himself heard about that and got in touch with me and agreed to an interview for Shire Network News. I asked him the question that you always ask anybody when talking about September 11th. Where were you when it happened? On September 11th, I was sitting in my office at 28th Street and 5th Avenue, which has a straight view down 
down Manhattan to lower Manhattan. And uh, we were just preparing to start photographing a documentary series. And so we had a large group of cameramen and producers gathered around in our offices as we were preparing to head out for the day. And uh, the first plane hit and people went to the conference room and turned the TV on. We all stood there. And, you know, the strangest thing is when they showed the video of the second plane, I remember thinking quite clearly, that's so tasteless. Why would they do an instant replay of that horrible image? And of course, there had been no video of the first plane hitting, and so I couldn't comprehend that I was seeing it happen again. Did you have the same experience that I and a lot of other people had of experiencing the thing almost as if it was a movie? You know, it's funny. My family is in the news business. I've always been a documentary filmmaker and a film producer. I've never worked in a newsroom. But somehow or another, I just kicked in the gear, and by the time the second plane had hit and 30 seconds had passed, we had a map on the wall, and we had people assigned to corners, and we had cell phone numbers on a big white erase board, and I remember just being in the middle of it. My mother swears she called me at about 11.30, and we talked for 10 minutes, but I have no memory of it whatsoever. So basically... You were all there, and you realized that you'd been given, basically, a mission from God. That's a kind uh, way to look at it. I, I prefer to be a little bit more honest and say, those of us who work in the film and television business are adrenaline junkies. And when you're terribly frightened, and you think the world's coming to an end, you go to your drug of choice, which is adrenaline, and you try and take as much of it as you possibly can. For me, at least for the first four or five weeks, being enormously busy, having lots of people shooting, having lots of material coming in, was far more therapeutic. I mean, you have to understand, in New York, for at least two to three weeks, we really thought the world was in. I mean, we thought there was going to be a nuclear attack or another building was going to fall down or anthrax was going to cover the city. I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of sense that this was going to blow over and that we were going to be living normal lives up. So you thought that your documentary, Seven Days in September, might be new coverage of the apocalypse to a certain extent? I think I felt that someone might end up picking it up out of a time capsule, you know, out of the destroyed remnants of New York. Part of why it was easy in some ways to make it was figured at the very least it was going to give us something to do. At the best, it was going to turn out to be an important document of what happened. And somewhere in the middle, it was an appropriate thing to do with our time. By the way, you couldn't do anything else. I mean, there was no work in film or television. There was no production going on. There were no networks buying television shows. So it wasn't like there were a lot of other things to do with your time. Now tell us a little bit about the film. It's in an unusual style, isn't it? You've got a lot of different little filmmakers doing their own thing and you're bringing it all together in one film. We made our first cut using the material of the six crews that I had working for me on that day. And each one of them, when they came back from shooting, would sit down and do an interview about what they saw. And we did that on a black backdrop. And we started to edit that together into a film. And I realized very quickly that it was uh, not very good. And it wasn't that we weren't good photographers or that the people weren't interesting. It was that we started going down this path of inviting people to tell stories about what they'd seen. And the six people that were working with me were all 20-some-year-old, reasonably skilled filmmakers. They didn't, they weren't, there was no diversity. There was no sense that we were watching the face of New York. So we put a little ad in the Village Voice and we said, um, if you have footage, we'd like to see it. And within about two days, we'd gotten 200 phone calls, inviting people in. And what we found was that very quickly, these average people with cameras were incredibly poetic in telling the story of what they experienced. And in some ways, their authenticity was far more interesting than our quote-unquote professional filmmaking. And so we turned the film over to them, in a sense, and we said, we're going to let this be the story of these 28 
average New Yorkers, and we're, I'm going to act as the ringleader and try and organize it into some coherent way. And Seven Days was always the idea that we would cover a week in the life of New York. But their stories were very, very uh, honest and uh, and emotional. It's an interesting documentary in that it turns the cameras away from the actual event itself and onto the faces of the people experiencing it. Yeah, one of the things we said to everybody who we were working with was, they said, where should we point our camera? And we said, just point it away from the buildings. Because our feeling was there were plenty of cameras pointed at the buildings and that the event wasn't as interesting as its impact on the human beings around it. How do you feel your film, Seven Days in September, compares to other documentaries about the event. In particular, I'm thinking about the Naude Brothers one. It's not a course race or a competition. I think the Naude Brothers did a remarkable job. Uh, I think the HBO film is a very good piece of work. I had a very particular agenda when I made this film, which was my son, who was then 11 years old, and my younger son, I knew they were going to say to me at some point when they turned 20 years old, hey, Dad, you were there. What happened? And I knew that what happened wasn't simply the story of the firefighters or the heroes or the police officers or the folks working for the transit authority. What happened was what happened to the people in New Jersey and what happened to the people in Brooklyn and what happened to the people in, you know, upper Manhattan. And so if I'd had my druthers, frankly, I would have put the film under lock and key for 10 years and never shown it to anyone. And the only reason I didn't do that was because friends of mine, after they saw an early cut, said, look, you've got to let people know this film exists even if you don't share it widely, because it's, an, it's a different way to look at the event. So I, I think that the best work about 9-11 hasn't been made yet. Which scenes in the film stand out for you in particular? One is, almost in the middle of the film, there's a moment when we're in Union Square, and the crowd, someone writes on the ground in shock, uh, the American government propagates violence around the world, and that piece of chalk galvanizes the crowd, and the crowd gathers around these two individuals, a woman and a man, and the man says, you can't write that, and he's screaming at her, and the woman says, I didn't write that, although it turns out she did, and we have a little bit of video when she's talking on the side. And the thing gets enormously emotional, and they're screaming at each other, and you feel that a riot's about to take You feel that people are going to be hurt. And the woman says to the man, what are we fighting about? And the man screams back with tears rolling down his face, I don't know. And they end up in each other's arms just fine. To me, the thing that I don't think people around the world know is that New York is an experiment. It is a lot of people from different nationalities and different languages and different religious beliefs, different economic data crammed into a tiny little piece of dirt. And that experiment almost failed. And if the city had devolved into violence and hatred and horrible, you know, looting, I think that it could be said that the experiment failed. And instead, I think in that piece of film, there's the evidence that that experiment absolutely succeeded. And I think the city became stronger and more resolute, more of a community from that moment onwards. And what was the, the second scene you mentioned? Not nearly as good a story. It's this little bird. There's a moment about four days after 9-11 where a group of neighbors are standing on a street corner and they're just looking at the sky and talking to each other trying to figure out what's going on. And then they all look down and they are standing around this tiny little bird. Someone says, is the bird injured? And they look at it and they pick it up and they determine that it's not injured. It's just dazed and it doesn't know how to fly anymore. And to me, it was such a terrific emblem of what it was like to be in New York in those days, which was just, I mean, it was a little like getting hit on the side of the head with a stick really hard. You just were, everything, you were like seeing stars. It was like one of those bad cartoon moments. And the bird, to me, is just the perfect iconography of that moment and what it felt like to be in New York. Do you think September the 11th changed America and changed New York permanently? 
Or do you think people are eventually going to, as some people say, get over it? Yeah, I, I don't think get over it works on any level. You know, any more than you get over World War II or you get over Pearl Harbor, you get over Nagasaki. I mean, I think that what we know if we study history is that things happen and then other things happen. So whether you believe that 9-11 had anything to do with Iraq or not, and, and I happen to believe that Iraq had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11 since there's no evidence suggests that they are related in any way, the truth is that going forward, from a historian's perspective, they have everything to do with one another because 9-11 was, was the impetus for a whole series of other things that are now in the process of happening. So I don't think we're over it. I think we're smack in the middle of it. 9-11 caused a, a, a lot of ripple effects. One of the things that it caused was that people wanted to communicate with each other more, and this actually really fueled the big boom in uh, blogs and, and blogging and people reading their own websites on the internet. Um, and there was a quite a, an unusual um, corollary to this, uh, which which led to, to you and I actually talking now, wasn't it? I mean, you actually yeah, found an entry on my blog. Uh, ex explain to our listeners about how that actually happened. This may seem immodest, but I'm, I'm always interested in what people are saying about my films or about me, either positive or negative. I, I'm happy to be criticized, and I am often, and that's fine with me. And so I have a little Google News alert that looks for the name of the film, or a couple of the films I've made. And uh, so I got a ping one day, and it said that Seven Days in September had been mentioned on this blog, and went online and found out that it was being given away as a prize, which I had a very funny reaction to. I mean, the truth of the matter is, it's an object, right? You can buy it on Amazon, and you can do what you want with it. You can destroy it. You can give it away as a Christmas gift. I actually have no legitimate right to be possessive of what happens to my film out in the world, unless you choose to copy it or, you know, steal the intellectual property of someone. But I, I had this funny reaction, which was, I, I frankly, I didn't read the site that closely, but I read it kind of quickly enough to say it's political, and I've worked really hard to make Seven Days not political. So I emailed you and said, you know, basically, why are you using my film as a prize, and are you using it in some way to promote a, a political ideology? And you emailed me back and said, no, in fact, you told me a funny story. You'd accidentally bought two copies and that you liked the film and that that was why it's a prize. What's interesting is the communication in both directions, because ordinarily, I would have no idea what's happening with my film in the world, and I would have no right to have a conversation with you about, you know, whether you're burning it or, you know, praising it or so. The world's become much more transparent in a lot of directions as a result of 9-11. It's a kind of a, a, an electronic version of that scene in Union Square, isn't it? You and I are probably on opposite sides of the political equation, but as a result of, of this film and new technology, we've actually come into contact. And we've had conversations, and the truth is, I don't know if there is such a thing as I... When, when you actually talk about the world in a, in a thoughtful and dimensional way, there aren't sides. My guess is that we made it a laundry list of so-called political issues that would be somewhere we very much agree and others where we disagree, and you probably have a label and I probably have another label, but those labels become, I think, less and less valuable in a more nuanced world. So I'd much rather have a conversation. In fact, I talk to people I disagree with all the time. It's one of the great joys in my life is to be challenged and challenge people and change minds and have my mind changed, and uh, you know, I think that's what intelligent people do. That was Steve Rosenbaum, the man who put seven days in September together. Nice man. You're listening to Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric group blog silentrunning.tv. I'm Tom Payne. Time now for Lawrence Simon. Hi there, this is Lawrence Simon and welcome to the Full of Crap Report. Correspondent Frederick Remington was sent down to Cuba by William Randolph Hearst in 1897 to cover the Spanish-American War. Minor problem, there was no war. So Hearst reportedly said, 
If you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war. It's a quote that Orson Welles mocked in his infamous film, Citizen Kane. One hundred years later, we have more than just newspapers to thank for manufacturing news in slow news months to keep the ratings up. With the cooperation of liberal newspapers, radio, television, filmmakers like Michael Moore, and the internet hubs like Huffington Post and Daily Cause, Mama Moonbat, Cindy Sheehan, and her obsession with President Bush has gone from a quirky shark story to page one. We now have full-blown public display of what happens when grief is allowed to progress into full-blown mental illness. This media circus could not have happened without the help of the lemming-like second-string and third-string Washington correspondents who had the misfortune to get themselves exiled to Crawford, Texas, to cover August's empty and meaningless photo opportunities at Bush's ranch. You know, there's not much to do there for outsiders. So it didn't take much for a few out-of-towners to take a deranged, grieving mother and stoke the fires of her obsession. With a little help from some public relations firms and a few political advisors and the unquestioning echo chambers of the I Hate Bush squad in the mainstream media, an insane, twinkling star is born. Furthermore, she's set some ridiculous boundaries on coverage that the press has been delighted to respect. Her family's opinion doesn't matter. It's only her opinion that matters. The subject of her impending divorce is highly personal, and she won't comment about it. The stuff she wrote in the past in various forums and email messages isn't important. She wants to meet with President Bush now, now, now. And the stuff that she said to President Bush before doesn't matter. The fact that she's met him before. She wants to talk to him now, now, now. Stick to the message, not the messenger, and, and so on. In fact, when she went off message of her obsession, she followed the orders of the Peace House to further their agenda and attack the Israeli occupation. The press has given her a pass on that slip and forgiven her for it and worked hard to help cover that up. You know, when you take the 10,000-foot view, there is no news story here. However, modern-day hearse have commanded their legions of pseudo-journalists, and as a result, now they're providing the anti-war movement, with lots of funds, too. Peace House was ready to lose its phone line permanently, possibly default on their mortgage. Well, guess what? It's all paid off now. Thanks to the free advertising, the entire alphabet of news networks provided in the past weeks. Amazing how that works for charity cases that the MSM agrees with. That got me thinking. Just as anti-war types whine about military spending and uh, space spending, wasting money that could be spent on curing AIDS and all social ills, well, how much research could be funded if we weren't wasting money on round-the-clock media news coverage of this madness, all those crosses and banners and fake coffins they keep making up, all the wasted money on cordons and strings of police and security for these crowds and marches and the counter-protesters. You know, don't forget the money that's going to take to clean up this mess when this is all said and done. I don't know how this whole Mama Moon Bad episode will end. All I know is that it, I hope, ends quickly and peacefully. It won't, will it? No exit strategy in sight, huh? This has been Lawrence Simon. Thanks, Lawrence. And you can read more from Lawrence Simon at This Blog is Full of Crap. Well, last week we ran the first part of an interview with Australian historian Keith Winshuttle, who keeps getting in trouble with the academic left over here for criticizing what he calls the politicization of history. Here's part two of that interview. When people come to look at their own history, they're really looking at where 
they come from so they can know where they are in order to plot a course to where they want to go. What would your advice be for people who don't know much about history but, but want to know what sources they can go to which give them a clearer sort of view of, of where things are without any sort of political acts being ground in the background, um, if such a thing is possible? Gee, that's, that's a very hard question. I mean, I mean you're right, your diagnosis is right. The solution is very hard. Uh, in Australia, there, there are very few people who... Um, who support me? Um, I mean, I've, there's now there's a now new book coming out um, later this year on um, on the whole issue of terra nullius, which is the basis of what I was talking about the High Court, um, the High Court's decision about uh, land rights in Australia, um, and that'll blow that apart. But um, um, it, it's there's nowhere you can go. Um, the um, the teaching profession has been totally taken over by these people. I mean, our children are being taught the most outrageous lies. I got an email last night. Um, I gave a talk on the white Australia policy last night. When I got home, uh, there was an email from a, a school teacher. He was, in fact, a science teacher who had been sitting in on, on a history teacher's class and was handing out the material which um, the history teacher had left for him. And the first question was, when did Australia abandon slavery? Now, the idea that Australia ever had slavery is outrageous. Um, there are a few political activists who say that um, the Melanesian labourers um, who were br brought here as coolie labour in the 19th century to establish the, the sugar industry um, were virtually slaves. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's a ridiculous um, 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 accusation anyway. The Melanesians came here willingly, um, even though the wages they got were extremely low by our standards, they were extremely good by their standards. And um, a lot of them came and wanted to stay, and they came back several times. It was a highly regulated um, process to make sure that it wasn't, was nothing like slavery. The, the, I mean, it's ironic that that the government realised that that accusation was one that they wanted to guard against, and so they set up an incredibly bureaucratic system to make sure that nobody was kidnapped, nobody was brought here under duress. Um, but we still we have um, school teachers now handing out stuff in class, saying that um, this was a form of slavery. Um, it, it's it, it's bizarre. I mean, Australia was one of the countries that supported Britain against the slave trade. Uh, and and some of the people in um, in early Australia, say Governor Arthur, Governor Philip, the first governors of, of Tasmania and New South Wales, respectively, they were people who were well known for their anti-slavery views, and it was those sort of views that got them the job because they were. They were sort of on the side of the um, of, of the, the indigenous people of, of the world, if you like, um, when they were appointed to the positions. Um, and so, for now, our, our teachers to turn around and accuse them of being advocates of slavery is, um, I mean, if it wasn't, if it didn't happen, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, What's the answer then? I mean, in America, David Horowitz is putting forward his academic Bill of Rights as a way of trying to get diversity of, of, of opinion into uh, the academic world. Is that the right approach for us? I, well, I, I admire everything that David Horowitz is doing. I mean, his energy is, 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 is sort of fantastic and overwhelming, and, and, and he's a great man. Um, I have some sort of hope um, in, um, in the younger generation. Um, I, I now get invited to quite a few... Um, conferences um, at, uh, in history um, that are put on for, for school, high school kids. Um, and uh, I get a terrific response for them. I, I'm usually brought along as, you know, there's a sort of panel of five people, and I'm the bad guy. The others are all, you know, pushing the, um, the sort of politically correct left-wing line. Um, and I'm brought along as a bit of um, diversionary colour. And, and, but I, I get um, cues of students afterwards wanting to uh, talk to me and wanting me to sign copies of my books that they've bought. So um, what I find is that the old 60s left, the left from the 1960s, is um, um, 
it doesn't cut much ice with its um, with the younger generation, um, but nonetheless it forces them to <coughs> to toe its line. Like they they have to regurgitate <coughs> the um, the line that they're taught to give, or they don't pass their courses. So they do that, but they do it with gritted teeth, and uh, they're not happy that um, they have to accept what they regard quite rightly as a view devised long ago and far away, and is now very much out of date. So there is some hope with the younger generation, but. Uh, um, and, and, and all I can suggest is that um, uh, people read history with a sceptical eye and, and we need more historians to expose this stuff. Um, to actually, and it's easy to do. I mean, my technique in Aboriginal history has simply been to read the works of the existing um, historians and then go and check their footnotes to see if the people who are making the pronouncements and doing the deeds that, they, that the historians claim, um, if that's actually backed up in the, in the archives. And um, what I've found is that... Um, there are massive quantities of, of falsifications of what's actually in the archives. Um, people not only inventing incidents that never happened, but changing the text of um, what, what, the, um, what the archives actually contain. They're changing the words of the historical actors to make them say the opposite to what they really said. You're not just up against academics and historians. There's also popular <clears throat> culture. The movie Rabbit Proof Fence, a case in point. Well, Rabbit Proof Fence is, <clears throat> is part of the problem, yeah. I mean, Rabbit Proof Fence, though, was a very academic kind of um, um, exercise. It was <clears throat> it was initially a book generated by a creative writing class at one of the universities where um you know the aboriginal author was helped a lot by um by um the academics running the course and then Phil Noyce who's an old uh, I mean Phil Noyce is mainly a, a director of thriller mil- movies in um in America but I've known Phil you know since he was uh, um a, a political activist in the 60s and early 70s in Sydney and Phil's an old left winger from way back and um and you know loved um running that story because he knew it would be popular not with the masses but with the the intellectual elite. Uh, it, it, it's an art house film, really, um, and, and and was popular with them. But then now it's it's worked its way into the school system, and, and students have to sit there and and uh, and watch it. That was Australian historian Keith Winchuttle. If you go to signatrunning.tv and check the entry with this podcast listed, you'll find hyperlinks to all the blogs and websites mentioned in the program. Go and enjoy. Until next week, may your God go with you.